Hello, greetings. Thank you for joining us at the Churches of the New Testament podcast, in which we explore what we can learn about the churches of the New Testament and how we can relate them to our lives and faith today. I'm Ethan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us this gift of spending time considering these things. And today we're going to look at a congregation that seems to be out of place. We can understand why we're talking about it now. And a story that ends up being a very sad situation, uh, yet instructive for us, and that of the church in Colossae. Uh, Colossae is part of the Roman province of Asia. It's part of ancient Phrygia. It's all in modern-day Turkey. It's about 100 miles inland from Ephesus on the Halys River, and uh, about 108 miles southwest of Antioch of Pisidia. So well, halfway between those two places to give some kind of indication. Um, it's only about 12 miles away from Laodicea. It's a significant way station on the main road through uh, Asia Minor during the time of the Greeks. But as Laodicea and Herapolis gained prominence during the Roman period, Colossae uh, lost prominence. And there's this very large earthquake that we have evidence for around the year 60 or 61. And it's a situation that hit Colossae hard. Colossae, in fact, never really recovers. Uh, the city of Chonai is built near its ruins. And this is probably why when Paul writes to the church, it exists in around the time 59 or 60, but by the time John is writing to the churches of Asia Minor, uh, Colossae is no longer mentioned. Uh, we uh, The area is known for wool production, and because it's on the highway through Asia Minor, and so we should expect the Colossae would have a mixture of native Phrygians, some Jewish people, some Greeks and Romans, and the church likely uh, reflected this kind of mixture. Now the church in Colossae is like the church in Rome because it's not founded by an apostle. We also have no ex explicit account of how it began. Uh, the fact that the Jews from Asia are present on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Asia is a province. It may have, would certainly have included Ephesians. It may have included uh, some uh, people who lived in Colossae. We can't know. Uh, we can't for certain. We can't dismiss it out of hand either. Um, what we know about the church in Colossae correlates from the time when Paul is in Ephesus, between 55 and 57. That in Acts 19 and verse 10, we're told that uh, the word of God was preached to all Asia, that both Jews and Greeks heard it. Now, Colossae is in Asia, and it's possible that the Colossians heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, but he doesn't act like he knows any of them. And he mentions in his letter uh, Epaphras, that Epaphras is among the Colossians. He is a fellow servant of Paul, a faithful minister of Paul on his behalf in Colossians 1, 7 and 4, 12. Uh, it's probably best to conclude that Epaphras, a Colossian, maybe some others, maybe Onesimus, definitely Onesimus in his own way, uh, Philemon even perhaps, heard the gospel from Paul, converted, and then Epaphras specifically began promoting the gospel in Colossae. Epaphras also seems to be active working with the churches in Laodicea and Herapolis, according to Colossians 4.13, and it's likely that others like him in other parts of Asia would, would go out. And so when we look at when Paul allows the word of it, God to go out through all Asia, what's happening is he is preaching the word of God. And there are some who are hearing him, and they are then taking it to the hinterlands of the province of Asia, and many would hear and convert from that work. And so the church in Colossae would have seen its its prominence, its highest point, from between 55 and 60, uh, precipitated by the work that Epaphras did among them. 
there's a big challenge in uh, the letter to the Colossians, uh, which Paul writes to them in prison, whether in Caesarea or Rome, somewhere between 58 and 62. Because of the fact of that earthquake and that Paul betrays no knowledge of it, it may be earlier to understand this has happening earlier and maybe perhaps a more of a Caesarea date for um, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, Epaphras visited him for some reason in Colossians 4.12 and no doubt provided some kind of report of what was going on in Colossae and in this area of Asia in particular. And this would prompt Paul to write letters to all these churches. So Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians probably at this time. He wrote his letter to the Colossians at this time. Uh, as we're going to see in a few minutes, he would have also written Philemon at this time. And he says in Colossians uh 4 and verse 16, that there's also a letter he was writing to the Laodiceans. Now, this letter has been lost. There, uh, some want to think Ephesians is really the letter to the Laodiceans. While there's no doubt and that we could suggest that uh, Paul did send a copy of the letter that he sent to Ephesus to Laodicea, also would have probably sent to Colossae as well. Uh, there's also a later... Uh, document that is called Paul's Letters to the Laodiceans. It's really just a pastiche of things Paul said in other letters that is generally believed to be apocryphal. And so, yes, we do not actually have the letter to the Laodiceans, and we can speculate all day long why that's the case, but uh, we will put our confidence in God that the Scripture canon is what it needs to be, and that Tychicus was sent with these letters and would distribute them as he had opportunity in traveling and visiting these churches in Asia. Paul is encouraging these Christians in Colossae to grow in the knowledge of Jesus and to walk worthily of him. And he wants them to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. And he, he really has this strong, powerful exaltation of Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 through 2, 10 that really kind of exemplifies possibly what's going on, but it's really hard to tell. And this is one of those letters that uh, we see the exhortations uh, so we have an idea of what Paul has in mind, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have great answers about what's going on in the church in Colossae. So let's look at what's actually going on here in the letter. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2 in particular, we have a lot of these issues enumerated. He wants the Christians to know that Christ is a source of wisdom and knowledge. And he wants to, them to know that so that they're not deluded by persuasive speech that would lead them astray. And we see this really in Colossians 2, 8, 9. He tells them to take heed lest there be anyone that makes spoil of you through his philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world. Rudiments there, the Greek stoicheia. Not after Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this philosophy and vain deceit are, are probably talking about various forms of Greek philosophy. Uh, our concept of philosophy is much more narrow and restricted in the ancient Greek version. In the ancient Greek version, philosophy is the attempt to understand how the universe works and to no divorce there between what we would consider the natural sciences and the metaphysics uh, uh, of, of the world. So uh, the idea is if everything came out of fire, what does that mean for how everything works and for how we conduct ourselves? Or if we everything came out of water or air or, or what have you? Going back to the rudimentary elements of the Soike of the world, these fundamental elements, air, uh, fire, water, and earth. And so what he's concerned about is you got these uh, people who might be very unduly influenced by Greek philosophy to kind of look to the Greek philosophical system for their construct and not to submit all that uh, to the lordship of Jesus. 
and of course we see that it's going to develop uh, definitely within the next few decades the suggestion that because of the Greek and uh, antipathy toward the body, many were starting to suggest Jesus wasn't really uh, human. And so the idea that Paul here is exalting Jesus as the fullness of Godhead in bodily form is at least trying to offset that concept. Uh, so some suggest that there may be some proto-Gnostic influences here in Asia that may be influencing the Colossians. Again, we cannot uh, know that for certain, but that's this kind of thinking that goes on with what we see here. But then, in the next part, in verses 11 through 12 and then 13 through 17, uh, we see that the concern seems to be about more things we would consider on matters of Judaism, that Christ the Colossians were circumcised not by hands but in Christ, being buried with him in baptism. Then, that while they were in their sins and separated from God, God made them alive with Jesus by taking the bond of ordinances out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's a lot of questions about that statement in verse 14. What is this bond of ordinances that was taken out of the way? Uh, when we consider Ephesians 2, but especially letting Paul make his own argument, and considering his conclusion, it's fairly manifest what it is. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body, the substance, is Christ's. In verses 16 and 17. Now, perhaps we can draw application to matters of, of binding ordinances that are not involving the law of Moses, but especially talking about the Sabbath day and the new moon, which are observances in the Jewish calendar. Uh, the, the idea that they be judged for what they were eating or drinking or, or feasts and things of that nature, especially in light of what we see in other New Testament evidence. This is certainly uh, a concern of, of certain Judaizing tendencies that there are some people who are causing difficulty because they're judging in these matters, and they should not be doing such things. But then beginning in verse 18 and through 23, there's also this concern about people who are getting puffed up because they said they've seen visions, uh, and they're talking about worshiping angels and things of that nature. To the point where he's going to conclude this chapter by saying, If you died with Christ from the rudiments, that's Toikea again, of the world, and why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to ordinances, handle not, nor taste, nor touch, all of which things perish with the using, after the precepts and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and severity to the body, but are not of any value against the indulgence of the flesh. What's interesting thing here is that we have uh, essentially a condemnation of asceticism. Not saying that asceticism as such is, 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 is a problem or wrong, that the challenge with asceticism is that it can't deliver on the promise. The idea that if we just abstain from sexual behavior or food or drink, that that's going to help us uh, curb the indulgences of the flesh. Uh, that this kind of stuff is will worship, and it's not necessarily glorifying God. And it's very interesting that he says this, especially in light of what's going to happen in the story of Christianity in the second century and beyond. But regardless, what's, what's interesting about this is that we could see this going either way. Uh, because you have some instances in Judaism where you have this kind of asceticism. You also have this stuff in Gnosticism. Uh, we tend to hear about the kind of Gnosticism that led to people being very uh, libertine in their sexuality, but the majority of Gnostics kind of entirely wanted to eliminate the body and therefore did not want to satisfy the desires of the body. And so we see here a, a situation that you can you cannot really make a coherent. There's not 
the likelihood that there is this party in uh, Colossae that is being very tempted by the Greek philosophies, but also Jewish strictures, and also imposing asceticism, it just seems very, very bizarre to assume that kind of thing. Uh, instead, what might be going on is that you may have different influences. If, there, if this is a substantive real issue, and that's the question, what is the Gnostic, or what is the Colossian heresy? What's going on here? If there is a substantive situation here where this is actually a real-life circumstance, it means that you likely have at least two groups or people of influence here who are trying to have people gravitate more toward that philosophical leaning or toward the Jewish stuff, or also either of them or perhaps a third party uh, coming in with the uh, visions and, and uh, uh, asceticism and things of that nature. But that's only if it's something that is real. One of the ways that we can try to resolve the conundrum of the Colossian heresy, the one that I think uh, makes a lot of sense in context, is that none of these are active problems right now in Colossae. That what Paul is writing is not about what is actually happening in Colossae as much as warning Christians about the kinds of things that are going on around them that may influence them. Uh, one uh, kind of very visceral image of this is spraying for it, right? We will spray sometimes insecticide and pesticide stuff to get rid of certain uh, uh, less than desirable creatures, right? Uh, to prevent them from coming. That this is Paul spraying for these kinds of divergent views when it comes to Jesus and the faith. Don't go the route that will lead you toward Gnosticism. Don't go the route that leads you toward uh, Judaizing. Don't take the route of, uh, of asceticism and thinking that's going to be the way forward. Now, instead, he's going through a laundry list of the kinds of things to be concerned about. Not unlike when a preacher today may stand up and warn about, for instance, the dangers of the kind of new sexual ethic being promoted in one sector, but also being concerned about the uh, kind of holding on to nation and blood and from another side, uh, maybe finding a third uh, option somewhere else. That if you were to try to create a coherent picture, you just have a hot mess because he's not trying to say, hey, here, this is one person or one group doing this, but you have a whole collective of this going on here. And that's what's going on most likely here in Colossae. And so if that's the case, it doesn't really tell us much about the church in Colossae because it doesn't say these people are there. These are just concerns that are of, of what could possibly be there. Uh, and then Paul continues in chapters 3 and 4 as he will in most of his letters, who provide some exhortation to Christians. And the theme in Colossians uh, is that they should look up and to, you know, as they're being brought up with Christ, that they should have their conduct above, not as below. And that's going to be his exhortation in chapters 3 and 4. They should avoid immorality. They should manifest the fruit of the Spirit toward each other. That the peace and word of Christ should be in them. All things should be done in Jesus' name. He goes through the kind of household code he does in Ephesians as well, that they should walk wisely among those who are not Christians, redeeming the time, speaking at, with seasoned words as with salt to properly answer each person in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. And again, all of these are very parallel, in fact, extremely parallel to other letters. Uh, Ephesians, you can almost track the exhortation. So we shouldn't think this is anything specific to the Colossians, but it's a good reminder of the kind of apostolic exhortation toward conduct that we should take seriously. Uh, 2,000 years later, things haven't changed as much as we might imagine. Another thing to talk about when it comes to Colossae is Philemon. Because Onesimus is identified as a Colossian in Colossians 4.9, and Archippus, who is a member of Philemon's house, very likely his son, is identified as an addressee of Philemon, 
but also as a church member of the church in Colossae. In fact, Paul wants him to fulfill his ministry. So Philemon is a member of the church in Colossae and would probably, it seems, that the church met in his house, based on Philemon 1 and verse 2. Uh, we don't have all the details, but Onesimus is a slave of Philemon who ends up being in Caesarea, Rome, and ends up with Paul. And Paul was sending him back to Colossae. Um, Paul is very concerned about Onesimus' welfare because Onesimus was a runaway slave. He left with Epaphras or somebody else without Philemon's consent and ends up uh, meeting Paul. Paul. He is not a Christian before meeting Paul, but now, through Paul's instruction, he has become a Christian. And Paul really wants uh, Philemon to receive Onesimus back without punishing him, to welcome him as a brother, and ideally to even be willing to send him back to be useful in service and ministry to Paul. And Paul, in this letter, just goes and does a full rhetorical uh, court press uh, to strongly encourage Philemon to do the right thing when it comes to uh, Philemon, I'm assuming, assuming Onesimus. And um, it, it speaks to the situation. Uh, we would like for the New Testament to be much more explicit about condemning slavery and everything slavery is about. Uh, there's many times where Paul will make it clear that if a slave can become free, he should become free, like in 1 Corinthians 7. Yet in that same passage, he says that the slave is the Lord's freedman and the free person is the Lord's slave. Uh, Paul and Peter are not nearly as interested in changes to social standing hierarchy that we would like for them to. On the other hand, they are not in all attempting to justify, commend, or prop up oppressive institutions. Uh, instead, they're trying to find ways that everybody can glorify Christ. And the way that Paul does this when it comes to Philemon is instructive, that he uh, wants Philemon to see the great value in, in Onesimus as a brother in Christ, no longer as a slave, to have a very different conception of him as a human being, and to allow the influence of the gospel to have changed that relationship between them to make it so that it would not really work very well for them to maintain a master-slave relationship. And in many ways, that did lead to a lot of transformation uh, in terms of the way that Christians related to others. Uh, and the promotion of Christianity did lead to uh, reduction and finally elimination of slavery in late antiquity in the Western world. Very powerful stuff. Uh, and it was done mostly by this power of influence and not by a direct attack on the social structure. Uh, but we should ha very much make it plain that way too many times people try to justify the idea that Nessus should still stay as Philemon's slave, as if that was Paul's point, uh, which is an unfortunate reading of that passage in that, in that situation, and that instead we do need to see it for the subversive letter that it is. It is very subversive. It doesn't seem subversive. If you want to, you can read it without it being subversive, but in truth it is truly subversive to that particular unjust social system. But that's what we know about the Church of Colossae, and unfortunately, uh, it was shaken to its core, uh, as the whole city was, very soon after these events. I mean, Paul's imprisonment is going on here from 58 to 62, so all of this has happened around the same time. Uh, the fact that the letter is preserved shows that some Christians made it out of that situation. Uh, they may be uh, dispersed to Hierapolis or Laodicea or other Asian cities, uh, or perhaps some were part of a church in Chonai that was built afterward. But Colossians is the first church that, Colossae is first church that's just no longer there uh, soon after uh, this letter was written. Uh, doesn't even make it out of the first century from what we can tell. And in fact, to this day, in the area of uh, Asia and Turkey, uh, the mound that we know is the city of Colossae remains unexcavated. 
uh, a very tempting and great opportunity for some archaeology there, if anybody wants to take that up, to uh, see what we may find in the ruins of Colossae. But we can get a lot from the example of the short-lived church. Though we have all these different people from the, the, these different ideas coming together and the possibility and danger of the of kind of compromising the gospel and what Jesus is with, with, with what they're remembering or hearing from the world around them and why it is so important to be rooted and grounded in Christ. Uh, that they um, could be a church, not found by apostles, but still grow and thrive. And that the, the word of life in the gospel could truly transform the social standing relationships of those among them uh, and, and subvert it in an indirect way, uh, not necessarily a direct frontal assault. We are so glad that you've joined us. We have gotten through the core churches. We are now going to be able to move into the seven churches of Asia that John will write to, Lord willing. We've already talked about Ephesus, so we're going to hopefully next time talk about Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. And may the Lord bless and keep you until then. Amen.